Hi everyone, my name is Jonathan. I'm an MBA coach and the host of MBAble, making the MBA more relatable. Every two weeks, I will be interviewing young professionals who have completed or are completing their MBA. Tonight, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Peter Duplessis from South Africa, who is currently a second year student at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Hi, Peter. Thank you for your time tonight and joining us. Uh, I know it's early in uh, Stanford. I appreciate your time, man. Are you excited for this podcast? You're, what's the plan? Get like uh, 10, 20 people on here and then... Yeah, I mean, the idea is like try to like, you know, like a lot of like MBA applicants are today like lacking clarity on, you know, like kind of career aspiration, you know, what to expect from an MBA. Mm. They all know the big brands, you know, they're all attracted by this, but they don't necessarily know what it means, uh, what, you know, what kind of like network leverage you can get out of there. So I thought of like, you know, we've worked with so many like talented applicants in the past to like, you know, leverage their experience and, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. share, you know, what they did, not in terms of applying, because that's kind of like, you know, boring, but more mm. really about the experience, about, you know, like, the, especially on the career outcome. I mean, you know, last time we chatted, like you share a lot of very interesting insight and, you know, that's kind of what I want you to kind of yeah, be able yeah. to showcase. Um, so it's going to be a bit formal. It's a bit weird because we know each other for a while, but you know, let's, uh, let's. Absolutely. I've never done a podcast before, but. Uh, but uh, yeah. let's give it a try, man. Thanks for your yeah, time. Great. Of course. All right, I'm ready. Real pleasure. All right, man. So like, since we're talking about Stanford, like, why don't you tell us a bit more about, you know, what you did pre-MBA and, you know, like a bit of your background for people to understand a bit better, you know, the way you come yeah so i i'm a physician by training before stanford i was practicing in singapore i had graduated medical school in ireland in dublin and immediately after that took a job in uh, in singapore uh, and i was a surgical resident i worked for about four and a half years prior to starting um, business school so it was definitely a very a very big shift from a non-traditional background into business school. All right. So like, uh, I remember chatting with you, like, you know, like two or three years ago, you were passionate about being a physician. You were like, you know, explaining me how you, you had direct impact on people's lives and you know, how it was driving you every day. Like, um, I mean, you were so passionate when you were talking about like your, your job, you know, so what really was like the key motivation for you to, to forego like this career as a physician and to, to explore something else and to, you know, jump the Rubicon to go into a Stanford business school? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for, for me in particular, the opportunity cost was, was very high. Um, I just felt that where, where healthcare was at present was, uh, it was in a, in a phase where it was significantly going to change fundamentally over the next 10 to 15, 20 years. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of uh, innovation and disruption that was going to happen in the, in the healthcare industry. And I was, uh, I had to, I, I'm a, I've always been a very curious individual and I wanted to be part of where some of those changes have, are happening to help drive and shape those directions as opposed to just be on the receiving end. Um, so that was one factor that that had my curiosity the other thing was that medicine has always been a very binding career you know you're um you're very much bound by where you can practice what you can practice in which hospital in which state or in which country 
Um, and for a lot of individuals, that's not a problem uh, and they're happy to operate within those um, constraints. But I think for the, the, who I was, that, that did not, I realized that's not, that's not necessarily something I want to um, do for the rest of my life. And I knew that if I went to the management side of healthcare, um, the options and the, the mobility, the freedom to, to sort of horizontally mobilize was endless. You know, you could, you could work in any subsector in healthcare you wanted to in, in any country and take on any project and anything that you think is interesting and exciting and new. And so, um, so that was, that was something that really appealed to me. And I thought, all right, well, if I can get into one of the top two or three programs in the, in the world, then, uh, I'd consider making the shift. Well, you did better than like uh, just top three, you into the best of the best. Uh, talking about this, you know, without going too much or too much in depth on your application journey, because uh, I don't think it's the most interesting aspect of, you know, what we have to discuss tonight. What was maybe like the most challenging aspects um, when you were like, you know, preparing for business school and, you know, went through like this uh, very heavy journey of applying to top business school? <laughs> yeah, um, I think I think for everybody the, the GMAT is always the the biggest thing. Honestly, that's the that's the, that's the the first gate you got to get through. That's I knew that if I so if I wanted to get into a top school, I knew that I had to break seven hundred. That's just that was just the goal that I set for myself. Um, and getting there was was tough. I took the GMAT more than once, um, but eventually got there. So GMAT is GMAT is the first thing. The second thing I'd say that was challenging is finding your referees. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that. My advice for people would be that it doesn't really matter who your referee is. You know, they don't have to be the head of the company or the head of the firm or whatever. What really matters is what can they tell, what can they share about you? What story do they have that showcases a remarkable attribute uh, about you as an individual? Uh, and that's what makes a powerful reference. And you have to really you have to really think about that. Who do you want to tell that story? What story can they share? Um, and then you have to go talk to them about it and be like, and you know, tell them that you're applying to business school and um, you'd like them to write a reference. The point you made on the on the reference letters is, uh, I think, absolutely crucial, and um, it's something we often share with our applicants. Like people are often like you know trying to. Uh, I think the two main mistakes is, as you say, like going for the title, you know, I want to go with the partner, uh, when the importance, as you mentioned, is to really pick someone that you know well and that person also like, you know, knows you equally well. Uh, the second mistake, and very similarly you touched this, is you've got to be transparent. I think in the choice of referee, something that transpires a lot is, did you involve your current employer? Were you mature enough as a professional to you know, gain their buy-in, their support in your application, were you confident enough to, you know, involve them, even though you, you knew that there was no guarantee that you would get into a top business school. Now let's go back to like, uh, what really matters, you know, career related questions. Uh, you touched briefly earlier, like that the motivation for you to pursue an MBA was, you know, mostly to move into like the management side of healthcare. Looking back around what one and a half year ago, you start your MBA at Stanford. What was like the 
dream career path you were looking at? I understand being a physician, coming from a non-traditional background, uh, you may not have the clarity yet when you started your MBA, but you know, if you could share uh, your mind state at that time. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I didn't have a very good um, understanding of, of the business world outside of clinical practice. Um, and so for me, my main goal was, all right, consulting sounds like a great option. It's a great way if you're coming from a non-traditional um, background, such as clinical practice, or maybe if you're coming from a military background and you're transitioning into the business world to really get exposure at a very high level and a very broad breadth in a short period of time in, uh, in, in, in whichever industry you want to go into. Um, and then after that, you can pivot. So I knew that was what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and my goal was McKinsey or Bain or BCG. Um, and uh, yeah, recruitment starts pretty early in the MBA cycle. Went into that. I was very lucky. I ended up getting a full-time offer with, uh, with McKinsey. Um, but during my, my MBA, I've also realized that there are a lot of other career opportunities as well that you can pursue. You know? uh, I'm happy with the one I made. I think it's good for, for my transition from clinical practice into, into management. But there's, it's definitely not the only thing that you can do. All right, two things here, like, that you touched that are very interesting. Like, the first one is like, you didn't mention that the recruitment cycle starts very early at business school. And I think that's maybe like, the biggest misconception from a lot of our you know, MBA applicants, they're like, oh, I want to go for a two-year program because I have more time to really, you know, figure out what I want to do. But now, you start your MBA, right, around August, September. When did you lock your internship offer with McKinsey? Yeah, so um, I don't know how it works at the other business schools, but at Stanford, there is a six-week period where no recruiters are allowed on campus. Um, it's sort of a protected academic period to help you adjust to the initial academics and also just get to know your classmates before everybody starts running around like headless chickens chasing job offers. Um, and so the day that six week period ends, the consulting firms and the banks show up on the campus and they start aggressively um, <laughs> you know, trying to grab people for coffee and uh, convince people to apply. Um, consulting and investment banking have the, have the earliest recruitment cycles. And so they, um, I think at least for, you know, pre-COVID when I was applying, the, the first phase or the first round of interviews was the first or second week of January. So you would have just gone back from your first quarter break and then hit the, um, the consulting interviews. And, and, you really have to prepare for those interviews. So you'd spend probably, you know, a couple of weeks leading up to that and, and the back half of your first quarter preparing for your case interviews. Um, and then most of them will get back to you pretty quick after that. So, well, you'd have your second round maybe two weeks later. And by end of February, you would know whether you have an internship or not, um, <clears throat> which, is, uh, which is great because then you have the rest of the year to not worry about what you're going to do for your summer. <laughs> uh, whereas some of the people doing more non-traditional things, um, it requires a lot more hustle and reaching out and uh, making phone calls and setting up interviews. So basically, like if, if we're looking at like more traditional pathways, consulting, bank, I would assume tech is also very aggressive at Stanford. Yeah. After six weeks, 
reaching like the first class, you have to be active. Yeah, and well, it's absolutely. And but at Stanford, there's also the, the we, like we have the the career management center, uh, and they're also extremely supportive. You know, so during those six weeks, they would start running workshops with students to prepare them for uh, what what's going to happen once this six year six week period ends. Um, and uh, they'll be giving you more information on how do the different recruiting cycles work for various industries because like consulting has a very fixed and structured uh, uh, recruiting cycle uh, and you know with fixed deadlines and whichever um, so it's important to know what those dates are and where the various uh, information events are for, for whichever companies but but some of the other non-traditional sectors you know like if you're if you're going into like if you're applying for a job at google or amazon then they, they definitely have proper recruitment cycles as well but a lot of the other tech companies don't um or if you're going into private equity or venture capital th those are more non-traditional recruitment um, processes and requires a lot of different workaround um, and so the career management center really is a fantastic resource at Stanford to help you navigate all of that, but it, it doesn't uh, hit you in the face as fast as uh, consulting recruiting. So you had clarity when you started your MBA, you kind of knew that consulting was going to be the way for you to transition from being a physician to moving more into like the, the business side of healthcare. Would you say that having that clarity at the start of your MBA was crucial in helping you secure this internship with Mike and Z. Yeah, I think um, just like most things, I, you know, even, even being at Stanford, which is a top MBA program, it doesn't guarantee you're just going to walk into a job at Bain or BCG or McKinsey, you know, like um, there's a, a lot of my classmates who also applied for jobs and who didn't get it. Um, so, you know, just because you've now made it into this top MBA program doesn't give you any special uh, privilege you, you still need to prepare and put in the work and with consulting the case interviews are are quite tough and they're very different to um, well at least definitely for me very different to anything I've ever gone through um, but it requires a lot of hard work and preparation and um, I probably did north of 40 or close to 50 case interviews to um, to prepare so you know if you if you put in the work you'll You'll do well, and if you don't, then <laughs> self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. And in terms of like so, 30, 40, 50 case interview, was it mostly with your classmates, mostly with the career service, like you mentioned, like you know, tremendous help from them? Yeah, that's that's a great thing about being at a place like Stanford. Um, I think almost 20 or 25 percent of our class comes from Bain, McKinsey, or BCG, and so, and I'm sure that's similar stat for places like Harvard and Wharton. But um, the great thing about that is, and I can't speak for the other MBA programs, but Stanford's community is really such a collegial community. Everybody really, really wants to help people succeed. So I reached out to a tremendous amount of my classmates, Jim McKinsey, and there was not a single one of them that didn't give me an hour of their time to run me through a case and give me tips and give me advice. Um, the Career Management Center obviously also had a lot of resources and people that we could use, um, but by far the most valuable resource to me were my classmates. Right. Let's uh, let's talk briefly about McKinsey. So, like, 
what is it like to complete like a summer internship as an MBA student, as a firm like McKinsey? By the way, you did it in New York, right? Yeah, so my, my offer was uh, with the New York office. I think it's hard to say because uh, everything went virtual at the, uh, this year. So um, traditionally, the, in, the summer internship experience would have been very different. Um, you know, they would have kicked off of an offsite where you meet all the other interns in North America and really go big on building that sort of sense of collegiality and, and uh, creating a sense of belonging to the firm. Uh, but now COVID hit and everything was virtual and I'd spent my entire summer internship taking it from my house in Palo Alto, uh, which was a very different experience. I still really valued the, the internship. It, uh, they put me on a healthcare project, which I really appreciated. It was a very impressive client and they had a very, very interesting problem that they wanted us to help solve. And I learned a lot from that internship by far my biggest takeaway was just the formidable quality of uh, the colleagues that I worked with. Um, so I had a, I had a good time, but I think it would have been a lot, a lot more fun if it was uh, in person. <laughs> and you secure the return offer with like the same office, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, I have a full-time offer with the New York office, which I've taken. As a generalist, or are you going to be specialized on the healthcare practice? So my, my offer is with a generalist, um, with the generalist practice. But what's great about McKinsey is they really allow you to carve your own path. So if you start from day one and you're like, well, at any point in your time, you say, look, I really want to be, I want to be a renewables tech guy. And I just want to do renewable tech projects because I want to, in four years time or five years time, I want to be the partner that's helping our renewable tech clients. Then they will try and really accommodate that and only staff you on renewable tech so that you can help build your brand within, within the firm as well. But you could also do what they call take a walk and do a bunch of random things. Um, so we'll see which course I take, but I will most likely focus purely on healthcare projects and uh, continue building my knowledge in that space. All right. So talking about career, what's the plan for you like in the next five, seven years? Like Mike and Z all the way? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Jonathan. I, um, before business school, I, I, I didn't necessarily think seven years ahead. I was just like, well... I want to go to McKinsey. So you go to business school first. And I think after the internship, I realized consulting is great. You, you learn a lot, but I don't necessarily want to do this for five or seven years. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe I, I get there and I really enjoy it and I, and I do decide to become a lifer. Um, but it's definitely made me realize, and especially these two years in business school as well, has made me realize just how much opportunity there is, especially at a place like Stanford. You, you get so much inspiration about what you can actually achieve with your life, you know, given proper thought process, hard work, and, uh, you know, good due diligence. So it's something I'm thinking about a lot in the last couple of months. What, what does the life after McKinsey look like? Do I, do I stay for life or... Do I plan to, you know, maybe do two, three or four years and then pivot into something else? And then what does that pivot look like? Um, is it starting a company from scratch? Is it buying a company with a search fund? Um, is it transitioning maybe into private equity or venture capital? There's, there's so many things you can do. Well, or of course the obvious, like going to work for a client. Um, so we'll see. It's, a, it's definitely a journey. Um, but one I'm very excited to engage in. Cool to hear. Uh, so you talk a lot about like, you know, Stanford, how collegiality is, you know, supportive community. So, you know, I think like 
every single MBA applicant's dream of being you dream of being you know actually by Stanford I think like no school has this kind of hype I mean HBS is there but Stanford is always like a notch higher what is it about when you're on campus <laughs> yeah and I, I mean I have to be careful not to be biased here but I'm obviously going to be biased I uh, I I really love Stanford Jonathan it is fundamentally changed my life in the last year and a half if I have to think about things that make Stanford special, it's by far um, the people in your class. You know, like we're, we're a smaller class. We're 440 students. You're very intimate. You will get to know pretty much everybody in your class at the end of your two years. And of these 440 people, you realize very quickly that everybody is so fascinating. You know, everybody is really, it's like a little treasure chest full of gems of just amazing, phenomenal people that are, so passionate about what they do and they genuinely care about the impact that they're going to have in the world with their lives. Um, but they are at the same time, extremely capable, you know, so they don't, they're not naive and have these, you know, grandiose ideas. They are actually capable to implement and execute on things that they want to achieve. And it is extremely inspiring. And at the same time, I don't know how they do it, but at the same time, everybody's just great to hang out with. <laughs> it's like, just have meeting a, a tremendous amount of phenomenal people that are that are not just capable and impressive, but also just fun to have a beer with. So in that in that case, a, a very special place, um, and I I love it dearly, and I'm I'm definitely going to miss it when uh, when it's all over. Um, but I have no doubt that we will maintain extremely strong bonds within our class. It's definitely in line with, you know, what we hear from our ex-applicants who went to Stanford and, you know, they have all shared how impressive the caliber of their peers was. So talking about this caliber, Peter, you know, coming from a very non-traditional background, you know, coming from being a physician, you arrive at Stanford, you know that, you know, you join the elite of the elite, um, in the MBA space, were you at any stage intimidated by the caliber of your peers in the first few weeks of your MBA? Yeah, it's, a, it's intimidating. It's honestly, and I think anybody that says they're not intimidated is lying. There's a very common phenomenon that I think everybody experiences at some point, um, like imposter syndrome, where you feel like, God, am I really good enough to be here? Because everybody's so impressive, you know? And so you, you, you do, I think most people do go through that phase where they get intimidated by their classmates. But I think the great thing about the Stanford community is that it's so collegial, you know? So you, you never really feel like you're in a rivalry with your classmates. You are inspired by each other and you help each other be better and achieve more. And uh, I think that's really a, a beautiful thing about Stanford. All right, so staying on the same line, Every time I talk to like MBA applicants, they are in awe with the alumni network. The reason why they want to join a you know, specific set of school, it's all about you know, the alumni network. Business schools have been heavily promoting um, that value of the network. They have been promoting the value of like the overall business school ecosystem. Last time we spoke, Peter, you, you shared that story of the time you had to interview um, several like CEOs in the healthcare industry. And, you know, when you shared how you were able to, to achieve that, it was 
absolutely stunning. And I think it would be good if you could share to our listeners, you know, a bit more details around that story. Yeah, that's, um, that was, that was fascinating. Um, and so definitely the Stanford network is a remarkable one. Um, and, uh, I didn't realize just how powerful it can be until about two, three weeks ago, I was doing a group project with a, with a friend. And as part of the project, we had to interview, uh, a CEO of a company and there were some very strict criteria. We had to find a CEO of a company that was, you know, between five and 70 employees, two to seven years old, north of 500 K in revenue. Um, and we decided we, we want to do it in the healthcare space, but it's hard to find a company that fits that criteria in the healthcare space. You know, they're not necessarily that public. And so I, um, thought, all right, well, I took two classes last year by two of the professors here that, that teach healthcare focused classes. And I dropped them an email, maybe at like 9am in the morning saying, you know, um, doing this project in another class, we have some pretty strict criteria for a company CEO that we're trying to interview. And uh, this is the criteria. And I just thought, you know, since you're so close to the healthcare space, maybe you'd, um, you'd have some names at the top of mind that we could, uh, look into and within two hours one of the professors replied and said you know peter great to hear from you again the following six names come to mind and just dropped you know the six names of the companies six names of the ceos their contact details and his personal affiliation to them and i was like wow that's impressive and literally 10 minutes later the other professor replied and was like peter great to hear from you um yeah listen just bought a company last week really cool doctor built this great company i think it's perfect uh it'll perfectly fit your project i'm going to cc you in of an email with him two minutes later we're in an email with the ceo he cc's us to his secretary like five minutes after that secretary sets up a meeting and uh i thought to myself this is like just a different level within two and a half hours we had um personal contact details of seven CEOs and a meeting already set up. Um, and uh, it just made me realize again, how powerful um, that network is. But what impressed me was how, how really eager everybody was to help each other succeed, you know, to really, to be collegial. Uh, they, they definitely didn't need to do that much effort or, or uh, put in so much work. And, and it just showed that, uh, they care and they want to help each other succeed. Pretty good. So those two professors are like uh, adjunct professors, like working professionals and expert in the field, right? Yeah. One's a retired executive that teaches here. And the other one is um, still runs. He's a partner at a private equity firm that used to, he, he was the physician um, in his past life, built a company, sold it to a private equity firm and then became an LP himself. So maybe a, role, a future role model for you? Seems like uh, sounds very similar to your pre-Stanford <laughs> MBA profile. Yeah, well, we'll see, Jonathan. It's definitely it's great to have the the vision for the for the inspiration. Um, <laughs> but we'll see if I'm lucky, maybe. All right, couple of last questions. I mean, more like for like incoming students or the one who are adopting about going for an MBA. Your class have been the one that is that has been the most heated by like the COVID nineteen disruption. You don't have the choice. You don't defer anymore. You were in class. How was it? How did you guys like cope with this? You know, pros, cons. What? 
Yeah, I think it's been, COVID's been suboptimal in every way. I think my class, we were lucky that we had at least had in-person teaching for about, what, close to seven months, eight months before COVID shutdown started hitting. If I have to think of some good things that came out of COVID, on the one hand, it really, because you couldn't have any large gatherings anymore, you really had to make an active effort to meet with people on a one-on-one basis and catch up, you know, and whether that's a, a nice hour walk on the dish here behind Stanford's campus or, or just around campus, it created a much more intimate experience for you to really bond and get to know your classmates um, because you also had to be a lot more uh, proactive about it as opposed to, you know, meeting someone at a social event where everybody's there. Um, so that was the one thing. The other thing is also just being virtual meant we could go wherever we wanted to. Um, you know, you didn't necessarily have to sit in Palo Alto. Um, and this past winter, I, a lot of us definitely spent some time in the mountains skiing. Um, you know, you book a house of 10 or 12 friends and spend the week taking classes from the mountains. So that's been great. Um, there's also been a, a, a massive benefit of with virtual teaching um, a lot of guest speakers are it's much easier for them to jump on a 45 minute zoom call than to fly down to California um, and so there's been a wave of guest speakers that have been popping up on our zoom calendars um, really just phenomenal and amazing guest speakers from all over the world that probably wouldn't have that volume would not have existed in a, in a pre-COVID world because, you know, it's harder to bring someone physically to, to campus. Um, but so, so yeah, so those are some of the, some of the plus pluses, but uh, it looks like spring quarter will be some degree of hybrid. And I definitely look forward to being in person again. There's definitely a lot of added benefits to being in person. All right, Peter. So for the ones who are, you know, like uh, have offers in ends, are looking at the news, are, you know, contemplating to maybe try to defer the MBA or maybe just go ahead. What would be your last advice to them? You know, like, should they just go ahead and start this year or maybe, you know, wait one more year before starting? Uh, that's a good question, Jonathan. I think it depends on the individual. Um, like, I think you'd still have a fantastic experience um, coming to business school. And and let, I mean I'm I, I'm highly skeptical these degrees of shutdowns will continue into the new academic year of September. Um, so if you got in now, like yeah, just come. It's great. It's a it's a life changing opportunity, and the, you will find ways to to get to know your classmates um, and get to know people. Honestly, academics is like ten percent or fifteen percent of the MBA experience, but. It did, if I was in that position, 29, um, if I was 25 and I got into business school and COVID was going on um, and I had the option to defer my enrollment, um, sure, why not? You know, Take the year. Go throw spaghetti at a wall and see what sticks. Try a startup. Do something. Because um, you know you have the offer to go back to business school in a year's time. Um, but if I was in my shoes, like 29, and you've already, you know, 
done your time in the trenches, <laughs> you want to get your MBA and get done, then just go to business school. You know, you're, you're not going to regret it. You're still going to have a fantastic time. You're still going to meet amazing people. And honestly, if the world is still shut down two years from now, <laughs> I think <laughs> we're all, we're all, we have greater issues. Than yeah, by now. absolutely. <laughs> and then you're probably going to be better off in business school than in the, outside of business school um but yeah so that would be that would be my advice i would I'd think about it from an age perspective but otherwise i would absolutely go for it that's a great advice i think it's something like we we kind of like relying on this one like uh, one thing that uh, caught my eyes i mean I, in my ears just now academics is just 10 to 15 percent of your experience overall well i mean i should i, I shouldn't you know <laughs> dumb down the academics too much i think the academics has been fascinating and very interesting and the quality of teaching, especially at Stanford is, is really fantastic. But I, I, I don't, I don't think that the, the, the academics differ that much between, you know, how you're learning things about finance and investing and people management between a place like Stanford and Harvard and Booth and Stern and, you know, insert any other top 50 MBA program. I think the the delta between the quality of teaching is probably marginal. Um, so the academics is great and you definitely learn a lot, but the real, at least for me personally, the thing that's really impacted my life the most has been the people in my class. You know, you are surrounding yourself with really people that are just so inspiring and so capable and so motivated that they, it rubs off on you, you know, and, and you, you gain some of that inspiration and ambition and um, your, your entire mindset changes. And that's, that has some of the biggest impacts on, on your transformation as an individual. Um, and so that's why I would <laughs> overvalue the, the social component of the of business school. And I think it's something that's, that's very hard to put into a monetary value, um, but it is something that is on a personal level so valuable all right thanks peter for your time tonight uh it was an absolute pleasure to have you as the first host of uh mbable um you know i think like you you provide a lot of like super relevant insight for future mba uh, candidates and hopefully a few will follow on your uh, footstep this year and next year at stanford yeah thank you very much jonathan i'm glad i was able to contribute and uh, best of luck with the series thanks and uh, we'll see you soon in new york man absolutely this is how the first installment of MBAble, the podcast to make MBA more readable, ends today. In the coming weeks, we'll be interviewing great MBA applicants across top business school or fresh MBA graduates who have embarked on a new career. I will also release regularly MBA application tips as well as the latest trends on the MBA marketplace. 